Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Hello and welcome to the Auditorium with your host, myself, Dr. Bramwell, and my worthy sidekick, Mr. Mountfield. <laughs> oh yeah, it's the spring, baby. Mmm. Oh. Sorry, yes, hello. <laughs> so I just had that May you feeling. Just, you coming just in. had that large coffee, didn't you? Yeah, maybe I did, possibly. That yes. May feeling. Yeah, you what know. What is the May feeling? Well, a- a- April is the cruelest month, you know, but a- May is the kind of the horniest, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, except it's uh, it's uh, it's October. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> just just pointing that out. Yes. We so might be recording this in October, but it feels <clears throat> like May when it's going out. Carry on. As Roy Harper once said, it may be February outside, but it's always August under your armpits. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he did I like say that. that. Yeah, he did say that. Um, we're very lucky to have Dan Meyer as our guest speaker today because Dan Meyer is an esteemed and established comedy writer who's worked extensively with Harry Hill for TV Burp. You're a comic as well, David. Well, You've seen well, him perform? I've, I've, I hang around with comics. I'm an MC. Um, yes, I have, and he's very, very good. And you can sort of tell from this talk. So it is long, but he peppers it with entertaining asides, and it's interesting of its own right. But he's a very comfortable public speaker, isn't he? He is, he is. Yeah. It, yeah, the really nice pacing in this. Some, yeah. Some lovely use of voices, but also someone who epitomises, I think, again, the ethos of the auditorium, which he has a passion for a character who is not known yeah. to, to many of us. And the work that Dan has done in investigating and exploring Francis Galton, who is the subject of his talk, is wonderful. It's fantastic. A fantastic story. I, I think it's worthy of an unsuccessful British movie, this story. You feel like this could star Stephen Fry and get funding from the British Film Council that doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, it's got that feeling to it. It's, it, it's a, a great British eccentric, a truly great, truly eccentric man. It is. And, and it's Galton, a shame about the eugenics, though, isn't it? But it we, is. Well, we'll get it. We'll, the listener will discover yeah. that for themselves. So Galton was a Victorian polymath and an inventor of certain things which we still use today. And also a man who had some some more unusual ideas about the kind of things that he uh, he imagined should be invented or could be invented. Yes. And, and it's a, it is a cracking story, this. And it's, uh, it's quite a long podcast, this one. But the payoff, uh, if you stick with it, is that Dave and I are going to be talking about one, you know, one of our great passions, which is biscuits. We've got a new biscuit for you. And oh, we've got a cracker. We, Not actually a cracker. We haven't got a cracker. No, but we've got a great biscuit. We have got a good biscuit. It's <laughs> a winner. Anyway, without further ado, here's Dan Meyer on Francis Galton. Hello. So, yes, I am uh, Daniel Meyer, and this is a talk about this man, Francis Galton. So, who was Francis Galton, and why am I doing a talk about him? Francis Galton was a Victorian. He was a scientist. He was a genius. He was an eccentric. He was a racist, uh, misogynist snob. So, what really appeals to me about him is that he was a true polymath. His achievements ranged across an extraordinarily widespread of academic disciplines in a way that you don't tend to see uh, nowadays, but really sort of characterised the Victorian era. So what sort of stuff did Galton do? Uh, Galton discovered anti-cyclones. Uh, he also popularised weather maps. Uh, the first publicly accessible weather map appeared in the Times on the 1st of April 1875, and it was Galton's work. So he's a very important figure in Victorian meteorology. But he also uh, invented the word association tests. Now, even just from these two things, I think you start to see that we're dealing with a very unusual mind. The same person that discovered anti-cyclones invented the word association test. Obviously, two very different branches of science, but product of the same brain. 
very important figure in, in the history of statistics, Francis Galton. He discovered he, the phenomenon of regression to the mean. I don't know anything about statistics. The phenomenon of regression to the mean is something that Galton discovered as part of his research into heredity. He also calculated something called the correlation coefficient, which was an important statistical tool in the Victorian era. So he was a preeminent Victorian statistician on top of everything else. The fact that we learnt geography at school is arguably partly down to Galton as well. It wasn't actually on the school syllabus in the early parts of the Victorian era. Galton felt it should be. He lobbied for geography to be added to school curricula. It's very difficult to get away from the link between Galton and eugenics, primarily because Galton coined the term eugenics in his 1883 book, Inquiries into Human Faculty. It's a thing that he kind of gets damned for, eugenics. He's sometimes known as the father of Nazism or the grandfather of Nazism. I think it's a little bit unfair. Galton's idea of eugenics was essentially the improvement of human stock by means of selective breeding. Now, by any modern measure, that's fairly socially unacceptable. By definition, obviously, elitist, uh, snobbish, naive. But you have to say that compared to the Nazis' interpretation of eugenics, a lot less genocide-y. So I think sometimes he gets a bit of a hard time. Lots of people were involved in the development of fingerprinting. It's quite a fascinating story in itself, and Galton, again, was one of those people. He came up with the first practical system of fingerprint identification to be used by the police for forensic purposes. This is something, if you've heard of Galton, this might be the thing that you, you know him for, because, it's oddly, it's become the thing that he's perhaps best known for in the last few years. The story is that Galton went to a country fair in 1906, and at this fair they were having a guess-the-weight-of-the-ox competition. And amazingly, some 800 people entered the Guess the Weight of the Ox competition, in which the prize was the ox. Who knew that it would be that popular a competition? Uh, and nobody got it right. Nobody correctly guessed the weight of the ox. Now, the statistician in Galton was, uh, had his interest piqued by this. He asked if he could have all the slips of paper that had all the wrong guesses on. There were actually 787 of them altogether. He took them home and he analysed them. He performed sort of statistical analysis on these 787 wrong guesses. And he noticed that even though nobody correctly guessed the way to the ox, the median answer of the whole spread of 787 was almost exactly right. It was 1% away from the correct answer. And I think the reason this has become the thing that he's best known for is it informs a lot of modern ideas like crowdsourcing and the hive mind and the sort of self-correcting way that websites like Wikipedia operate. And he was the first person, really, to formalise this idea that ask the crowd and somewhere right in the middle you'll probably get the right answer. So he managed to do all of this in one lifetime and somehow still found time to invent the dog whistle as well, of which we'll hear a bit more later on. But if these are the if these are the bricks, if you like, I'm more interested in the mortar. If these are the sort of things for which Galton is rightly remembered, I'm more interested in the other weirder, stranger ideas that he had before, during and after these, which perhaps don't get remembered so much. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about for the rest of the talk. I'm going to do it chronologically. I'm going to take you through his life. So we start in 1822. Galton was born in Birmingham. He was the youngest of seven children. It was a very close, loving, progressive family. Uh, and Galton was a bit of a child prodigy. And we can tell this from something that he wrote to his sister when he was just four years old. He wrote, My dear Adele, I am four years old and I can read any English book. I can say all the Latin substantives and adjectives and active verbs besides 52 lines of Latin poetry. I can cast up any sum in addition and can multiply by 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10. I can also say the pence table, I read French a little and I know the clock. Now, I'm sure you're thinking the same as me. It's all very well knowing your Latin substantives. Not that great on your nine times table, are you, Frank? I thought we wouldn't notice. If you need more evidence of the child prodigy, Galton, I can tell you that he wrote his will when he was eight years old. 
Uh, there it is. Francis Galton's last will and testament, which concludes with a sentence, I make my dearest sister Adele my executrix. Now, not enough eight-year-olds use the word executrix nowadays, I think. Broken Britain. So that gives you a sense of the child prodigy. At just 15 years old, in 1837, Galton left school and he enrolled as a medical student at Birmingham General Hospital. And his job there was to mix up the medicines from the various compounds that were stored in the dispensary for the, for the patients. And here we see perhaps Galton's first strange idea, if, we, if that one's not a strange notion. He decides if he's going to work in the dispensary, then he should familiarise himself with the effects of all the compounds that are stored in the dispensary. So he decides to taste a little bit of each one of them in alphabetical order and record the results that they have on him. He doesn't quite get through the alphabet. He abandons the experiment at C, uh, as he records sometime later in his autobiography. I had foolishly believed that two drops of croton oil could have no notable effects as a purgative and emetic. But indeed they had, and I can recall them now. So both ends, basically, that's what he's saying. It's like a human Catherine wheel. So he carries on his uh, medical studies at King's College in London, and then in 1840 he decides to delay his medical career to go to Cambridge to read maths. But before he goes up to Cambridge, he decides to take a European holiday. And on this holiday we see Galton's next strange notion. Galton decides to visit an area of Slovenia called the Adelsberg Caves. And he wants to uh, visit the Adelsberg Caves because they're home to a rare salamander called the Olm, or Proteus anguinus. And why this interests Galton is that no specimen of Proteus anguinus has ever been brought back alive to Britain. And the 18-year-old Galton decides he's going to be the first person to capture Proteus anguinus, the Olm, and bring it back to Britain alive. To his credit, he, he manages to get hold of two samples, two specimens, and he does manage to bring them back to Britain alive. Unfortunately, as soon as they arrive, uh, one of them dies and the other one is subsequently eaten by a cat. And I mention this because it's the start of a pattern in terms of uh, Galton's relationship with animals, as you will see. So having had his holiday, he, as planned, he goes up to Cambridge. Now you would think, knowing what a prodigious child he was, that Galton would do well at Cambridge. In fact, his mind is kind of his enemy. He doesn't do very well because he overworks. He works so hard, he has a nervous breakdown, he has to go home to recuperate, and his entire time at Cambridge is characterised by these periods of overwork, followed by nervous exhaustion, followed by recovery. So uh, Cambridge isn't really a happy period of, of Galton's life. Finally, in 1844, he does just about scrape through and graduates. Shortly after this, his father dies, and this has a huge effect on Galton, and Galton inherits a lot of money. And if you think about it, this is a very crucial time in a young man's life. He's just graduated from university, deciding what he wants to do with his life, and exactly that point... He inherits so much money that he won't actually ever have to get a proper job in his life, which is kind of a perfect storm for the Victorian polymath. Not having a job tends to be a big part of it. So he has to decide what he's going to do with the rest of his life. Uh, and in 1845, he decides to go travelling again. He goes to Egypt with a couple of mates, uh, and they travel around. They have a fantastic time. They see all sorts of interesting sights, meet very interesting people. They meet the governor of Berber, who gives Galton the gift of a monkey. And Galton travels to a local souk, and he buys another monkey to keep it company. So they travel around, the three guys and the two monkeys travel around Egypt. After a while, his two mates decide to go back to England, but Galton's enjoying it so much he carries on travelling. Uh, he travels to Damascus, uh, he travels to uh, Palestine, he learns to speak Arabic. Everywhere he goes, the monkeys go with him. Eventually, after three months, it's time to come home again. So he decides to bring the monkeys with him. Unfortunately, on their first night back in London, uh, the monkeys freeze to death. Uh, I know, it, is a, it gets sadder when you hear the detail that they're found in the morning in the scullery, huddled together for warmth. So again, uh, it's sort of Galton 2, animals nil. 
it's a slightly dissolute period then in Galton's life. He falls in with a sort of hunting and shooting set. He spends the next couple of years travelling around his friends' country estates, learning to hunt. And this culminates in 1849 with a seal shooting trip to the Shetlands. You don't see them advertised in the Observer magazine anymore for some reason. He's become adept at rock climbing in this period as well. And now we see his next uh, strange notion. He decides he's going to shin up a rock face in the Shetlands and gather a selection, cross-section of seabirds, and he's going to take them back to England and use them to populate the lake on his brother's estate at Edston Hall in, in Warwickshire. Again, to his credit, he gets up the rock face, he gets hold of the birds, and he gets them on a train to London. Predictably, on the train back to London, most of them die of cold. A few make it back as far as the lake in, in Warwickshire, but they fairly quickly die off as well. And the last one to go is an oyster catcher, which is caught out by a cold snap and its feet freeze in the snow one night, and a fox comes across this oyster catcher with its feet frozen in the snow, and all that's left of the oyster catcher the following morning is, um, is a pair of legs sticking out of the snow. Uh, in 1850, Galton gets the travel bug again, and with the help of his cousin, Douglas Galton, who's a kind of big cheese in the Royal Geographical Society, uh, Galton gets the, the backing of the RGS to undertake an expedition to Africa. And the idea of this expedition, the purpose of it, is to map the area that we now know as Namibia. Now, at this point, it's just a blank on the map, as much of the interior of Africa is. It's a series of um, tribal homelands, Namakraland, Avampaland, Damaraland. This is where he decides to go. He's 28 years old. He's leading a big expedition, his first expedition. He does extremely well. He's away for two years. Because he's got the kind of brain he's got, where he's always counting, he's very meticulous, his surveying and mapping skills are actually really good, and the work he does is really valuable. So when he comes back after two years, he's awarded the gold medal by the RGS, which is the biggest, the greatest honour they can bestow. It's quite a happy time for Galton, this. Uh, in 1853, on his, after his return, he marries. He marries Louisa Butler. Uh, and he writes a book. He writes a book called Tropical South Africa, which is a very lively account of his, of his uh, expedition. And it does extremely well. A uh, very popular book. He, get lots, he gets lots of nice letters about it. The letter that means the most to him, though, is a letter from his half-cousin, because his half-cousin is Charles Darwin. They're both the grandsons of uh, Erasmus Darwin, but via different grandmothers. And Darwin writes this letter to um, Colton, which I think is fantastic. It tells you a lot about Darwin and how enthusiastic and modest he is. Darwin writes... I last night finished your volume with such lively interest. I have studied very rare voice recordings of Darwin, by the way, just, just so. I, it's like he's in the room, just trust me. I last night finished your volume with such lively interest that I cannot resist the temptation of expressing my admiration at your expedition and at the capital account you have published of it. I have no doubt you have received praise from so many good judges that you will hardly care to hear from me. I live at a village called Down, near Farnborough in Kent, and employ myself in zoology. But the objects of my study are very small fry, and to a man accustomed to rhinoceroses and lions would appear infinitely insignificant. I should very much like to hear something about your brothers, Darwin and Erasmus. Now, this is a bit confusing. They're both the grandsons of Erasmus Darwin, but Galton has brothers called Darwin and Erasmus. It's no wonder they inbred themselves out of existence. I very distinctly remember a pleasant visit at the Larches, heaven knows how many years ago, and having many rides with them on ponies, without stirrups. I love that without stirrups detail, like this is Darwin's idea of extreme sports. So a lovely, lovely letter, and we see that, uh, that he receives through his lifetime lots of these lovely letters from Darwin. 1855, uh, Galton writes another travel book called The Art of Travel. It's a very different kind of book, though. This is a kind of compendium of travel tips for uh, not for your average holiday maker, but for your hardy explorer and your adventurer. Uh, most of the tips are written by him. 
Some of them are taken from other explorers, and he's compiled them all into one sort of anthology. Uh, and again, this book does incredibly well. Really successful book. So successful, in fact, it's still in print today, which might surprise you when you hear this bit from the introduction. A young man of good constitution who is bound on an enterprise sanctioned by experienced travellers does not run very great risks. Savages rarely murder newcomers. They fear their guns and have a superstitious awe of the white man's power. Still in print. It's no Lonely Planet Stockholm, that's for sure. Um, so uh, some of the advice in this book is extraordinary. Uh, I've only got time to tell you about one thing today, which is Gon's advice for swimming with horses. How to get a horse across a river. He's got some very specific advice about this. You can tell he's a real horse whisperer from this advice as well. He says, in crossing a deep river with a horse or other large animal, drive him in. Or even lead him along a steep bank and push him sideways suddenly into the water. Having fairly started him, jump in yourself, seize his tail and let him tow you across. If he turns his head with the intention of changing his course, splash water in his face. Holding his tail with one hand and splashing with the other. This is by far the best way of swimming a horse. I wouldn't want you to think that all this uh, advice went unchallenged. It didn't. Samuel Baker, another explorer, in his book Nile Tributaries of Abyssinia, counters this advice and says, no, actually this is the, by far the worst way of swimming a horse for two reasons. Firstly, if you grab a horse by the tail, having pushed it into a river, you've got a pissed off horse. And the worst place to be in relation to a pissed off horse is behind it because you're going to get kicked. Secondly, predators tend to attack from the rear. So if you don't get kicked to death by the horse, you're going to end up as a sort of crocodile's amuse-bouche. Galton could have made a career as an explorer, but actually he never undertakes another expedition. His life takes another turn. He and Louisa settle into a new home, 42 Rutland Gate in South Kensington. Uh, and it's a slightly fallow period, uh, a domestic period for Galton, but his mind is still working, he's still active, he still wants to do things, he still wants to experiment. So he concerns himself with, for instance, working out how much gold there is in the world and whether it would all fit in his new house. For absolutely no reason. He discovers not only would it fit in his house, it would all fit in his dining room with 94 cubic feet to spare. Having solved the gold problem, he then moves on to another pressing domestic problem, and he spends months, literally months, working on a formula for the perfect cup of tea. Shortly after this, Galton has another nervous breakdown, from which he does fully recover, and then he devotes himself to his main interest for the rest of his life, really, which is the study of heredity. Um, he writes a book in 1869 called Hereditary Genius. And in this book, as you can probably guess from the title, he attempts to prove that genius is inherited. Uh, Galton didn't coin the term nature versus nurture, but he was certainly at the forefront of the nature versus nurture debate. And it's pretty clear from this book which side of the fence he falls on. He says, I have no patience with the hypothesis occasionally expressed that babies are born pretty much alike. It is in the most unqualified manner that I object to pretensions of natural equality. I told you he was a snob. This is obviously the basis of his eugenic principles. You have to believe that talent, ability, physical characteristics, everything is inherited, or else the whole idea of selective breeding doesn't make sense. So he's absolutely on that side of the fence, and he spends most of the rest of his life trying to prove it. Again, a very popular book. And again, the praise that means the most to him comes from Darwin, who writes... I have only read about 50 pages of your book, but I must exhale myself, else something will go wrong in my inside. <laughs> Actual letter from Darwin. I do not think I ever in my life read anything more interesting and original, but it sets me thinking so much that I find it very hard work. But that is wholly the fault of my brain, and not of your beautifully clear style. I love these self-effacing letters. The relationship between the two men is, is sort of a lovely, warm, supportive relationship. They only actually really fall out once, but unfortunately when they do fall out, they fall out very publicly. And ironically, it's when Galton is trying to prove one of Darwin's theories. Darwin has a theory called pangenesis, 
And the theory of pangenesis states that all the organs in the body contribute to the reproductive process and the inheritance of characteristics. And Darwin thinks they do this by shedding tiny particles, which he calls gemules. And these gemules carry what we'd now call genetic information, I suppose. And they circulate around the body, they settle in the reproductive organs, and then they're passed on through reproduction. And that's how we inherit characteristics from generation to generation. Galton loves this theory. It supports his ideas. So he sets about trying to prove it. He devises an experiment to prove this theory. You take a rabbit with a distinctive physical characteristic. If you then take blood from that rabbit, which would contain these gemules, you uh, transfuse it into a second rabbit that doesn't have the same characteristic, mate that with a third rabbit that also doesn't have the same characteristic, then it should follow that if the theory of pangenesis is correct, the offspring of rabbits two and three might carry the characteristic of the donor rabbit. So this is the thing he sets up. This is gonna prove this theory. So he tries this experiment and it doesn't work. So he tries it again and it doesn't work. He thinks it might be taking too long to get the blood from rabbit one to rabbit two, so he inserts a cannula directly into rabbit. He connects the rabbits, basically, and transfuses blood directly one from one to the other one, and it still doesn't work. He tries every variation he can think of on this experiment, and it never works. He spends a year doing this experiment. Uh, now, there are obviously consequences to doing this experiment for a year. 88 rabbits. History, sadly, doesn't record what happened to the rabbits, but knowing uh, Galton's track record with animals, I'm, uh, you know, I'm pessimistic. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work, and he has to reluctantly report his findings to Nature, the journal, uh, the journal Nature, the journal of the Royal Society. What he, unfortunately, what Galton forgets to do is tell Darwin that these experiments haven't worked. So presumably, the first Darwin knows about it is sitting at the breakfast table, leafing through Nature one week, and suddenly there's. I wonder if there's anything about me in this week. There should be. I'm Charles Darwin. What the? And he was. He was absolutely furious that. Uh, that uh, Galton had basically dissed his theory based on this experiment and they had a bit of a falling out and Darwin said well look I didn't say anything about blood you said you made up the blood bit and Galton fair, quite reasonably argues but you said that the gemules circulate in the body so if they're not circulating in the blood what are they circulating in Fanta you know obviously I'm paraphrasing so they um so they fall out for a little bit but being the guys they are they make it up and they, they make it up to the extent that they actually resume the experiment, bizarrely, for a while before giving it up uh, for good. But Go uh, Darwin has a, a, a big influence on, on Galton's thinking about a lot of things, but particularly religion. Galton's re uh, background wasn't particularly religious. His family were a Quaker family, but not particularly fire and brimstone or anything. But having read Origin of Species, Galton basically has his mind blown, and he swings completely the other way, and he develops this hobby of baiting believers. And this is crystallised in 1872 in a, in a paper that he writes for the Fortnightly Review called Statistical Inquiries into the Efficacy of Prayer, in which he attempts to prove statistically whether or not praying works. Right? Having, you can sort of tell he's already, he knows what conclusion he wants to reach. It's not all that scientific, but his, his logic, I think, is brilliant. This is the premise that, that Galton argues. He says, the health of the king or queen is routinely prayed for at church services and public meetings and so on right? Therefore, sovereigns are the most prayed-for people in the country, because large groups of people pray for their health all the time. So if prayer works, it should follow that members of royal households have a longer life expectancy than members of other affluent groups who aren't afforded the same privilege of having people praying for them all the time. This is Galton's argument. This is how he's going to prove whether or not praying works. Now, of course, to see this through, you'd have to compile some sort of table showing the different life expectancies of various affluent groups uh, around Europe, and who's got the time to do that? Galton. Galton's got the time to do that, of course. And what he demonstrates is, of all the affluent groups that he compares, and he, he excludes assassinations or violent deaths, just so you don't, not to duke the stats, 
he actually concludes that members of royal households have the lowest life expectancy of any comparable group. Therefore, prayer does not work. Where's your God now? That's, that's essentially uh, Galton's argument. Now, the religious press are obviously absolutely furious about this. This is, this is quite a controversial, blasphemous thing to be saying in, in 1872. He gets loads and loads of angry letters from sort of village parsons and things. There is, of course, one beacon of light in all this. He does get a lovely letter from, from Darwin, who, of course, thinks it's brilliant and writes, What a tremendous stir-up your excellent article on prayer has made in England and America. We move on. We move on to 1875. Uh, a brief detour into a letter that Galton wrote for a publication called The Field. Uh, it's called Rate of Bicycles. And in this, just to show you how quickly he leaps from one subject to another, Galton uh, comes up with a way for cyclists to measure the speed they're going. Right? And the Galton's idea is this. It's not like anything like the modern speedometer that you might imagine. What Galton says you should do is while you're cycling along, you should take out an hourglass and uh, look at it while you're counting the number of rotations of the wheel before the, the sound runs out in the hourglass. He hasn't really thought this through, has he? I think we move on to 1883, but when 1883, we really sort of hit the mother load. 1883, a book called Inquiries into Human Faculty, which I mentioned earlier, which is an extraordinary book. It gathers much of Galton's previously published work into one mad volume and adds a few new ideas, like a greatest hits album. There's a chapter called Whistles for the Audibility of Shrill Notes. This is one of my favourite things that Galton wrote. He says, I have tried experiments with all kinds of animals on their powers of hearing shrill notes. I have gone through the whole of the zoological gardens using an apparatus arranged for the purpose. Right, so Galton wants to see whether animals can hear notes that are outside the range of human hearing. Right, so for this purpose, he devises Galton's whistle. It's, it is the forerunner of the modern dog whistle, the idea that you, you know, it produces a sound that we wouldn't be able to hear. So he wants to test it on different animals but he doesn't want to sort of embarrass himself by going around the zoo blowing a whistle at animals. I also think he probably, he doesn't want the animals to react to the visual stimulus of him making the noise. So he has to make the noise in as subtle a way as possible. And that's the apparatus that he's talking about. Sure, you can predict the, the results are bound to be successful. He says, I have tried the whistle for hours on a great many large dogs, but could not find one that heard it. Ponies are sometimes able to hear very high notes. I once frightened a pony with one of these whistles in the middle of a large field. My attempts on insect hearing have been failures. I love the idea of blowing a whistle at an earwig or something. In 1884, Galton has an idea for something called an attraction gauge. Now, I this, this really crystallises Galton in one idea for me. He has the idea that uh, if you sit people around a dinner table, if people fancy each other who are sitting next to each other, then they'll lean in and talk to each other. And the more they fancy each other, the more they will lean in. He says that if people have an inclination towards each other, they will literally incline towards each other. This is his theory. So he says, well, then it's a very simple matter of placing pressure pads under all the chairs around the dinner table and hooking them up to a pressure gauge, and you can get a numerical reading for how much people fancy each other because of how much they're leaning one way or the other talking to the person next to them. And I love this. It really crystallises uh, Galton for me. He's always taking these kind of uh, ineffable, human, organic, abstract ideas and trying to quantify and measure and put a scale on them, and usually failing. Another example is in 1885, the next year, he writes a paper for Nature called Measure of Fidget. The Measure of Fidget, in which he attempts to create a boredom index in a similar sort of way. He notices that when he goes to a lecture, if people are paying attention at the lecture, they sit up straight in their seats. And if they're sitting up straight in their seats, it means that their heads are equidistant. Right? If they're not paying attention, they start slouching and slumping. I love whenever I say this, there you see people sort of slightly just do, doing that in their seats. They, uh, they'll slump in their seats, and if they slump in their seats, their heads won't be equidistant anymore. So the more regular the distance between the heads of an audience, the more interesting the talk is. That again is his statistical correlations. Classic Galton. 
Also classic Galton, he says, uh, I endeavoured to give numerical expression to this variability of distance, but for the present have failed, again, as, as per usual. Even when Galton has his portrait painted, he's not really interested in the, in the finished product. He's more interested in how many brushstrokes the portrait painter takes to finish the portrait. He counts every brushstroke because he thinks there might be an optimum number for painting the perfect portrait. This is classic Galton. In 1888, by 1888, his counting has got completely out of control. He and his wife Louisa go on a holiday to Vichy, and Galton spends the entire time uh, surreptitiously recording how long it takes passers-by to walk between two fixed points on the street. Absolutely no reason whatsoever. And when he's not doing that, he's surreptitiously recording, uh, all the, categorising all the women that walk past him into five size categories, from thin to prize fat, as he describes it, and recording these on a little sort of clicker that he has in his pocket. He comes back to Britain, and later the same year, his obsession reaches its apotheosis. He travels around Britain from city to city, recording the number of beautiful, average and ugly women that he sees in each city, with the uh, idea of then going back to London and compiling a beauty map of Great Britain from the results. Sadly, we don't have the finished beauty map, but we do have a... Uh, we do know that, according to Galton, the city in Britain with the highest concentration of beautiful women is actually London. Good manners prevents me from telling you which city Galton concluded was the ugliest city in Britain. Just let me ask, uh, apropos of nothing, is there anyone here from Aberdeen? <laughs> it, was, it, it was Aberdeen. Uh, then we, there's a whole volley of extraordinary ideas that, Sally, I don't have time to tell you about. In 1894, there's the paper for the Psychological Review, Arithmetic by Smell. <laughs> Honestly. He reaches 1896. A couple of years later, 1896 is a vintage year. There's uh, Intelligible Signals Between Neighbouring Stars, which is a paper that goes on for pages and pages and pages, which proposes a system of mirrors that might be used to communicate with Martians. And Three Generations of Lunatic Cats, which is... Uh, <laughs> it doesn't really get any better than the title, to be honest. Uh, will it, you know. So in 1897, uh, there's a big change for Galton. His wife Louisa dies, and his, uh, his great-niece Eva Biggs moves in to look after him. And actually, it gives Galton a bit of a new lease of life. Uh, and he devotes himself, for the rest of his life, he really devotes himself to his eugenic ideas, including writing a, a utopian eugenic novel called Can't Say Where, a classic story of boy stumbles across eugenic utopia, boy meets girl in eugenic utopia. When I see, say boy, I mean professor of statistics. Professor of statistics must pass series of rigorous anthropometric and medical tests to gain acceptance into eugenic utopia. Publisher rejects book on basis of absurdly unrealistic love scenes. It, it, he then ordered it d uh, destroyed after his death, but there is still a, there's a heavily redacted copy that still exists. We reach 1906, and Galton has time for one last great work. And if I, I kind of like that this is the last thing, because if you take one thing away from this talk, I think it would be great if this was the thing. So in 1906, he writes a paper, another letter to Nature, in fact, uh, a letter entitled, Cutting a Round Cake on Scientific Principles. Right, so the, the argument here is, Galton feels that the problem with uh, the way we cut cakes is you cut a wedge out of a round cake, obviously. The problem with that is you then leave two exposed planes of cake, right, which dry out. So Galton wants to find a better way of cutting a cake, which means it won't dry out. And a cake that will last for three days. So this is his principle. This is what he's going to do. You're probably ahead of me here. So day one, he says, don't cut a wedge out. What you want to do is cut a slice across, across these tram lines, then eat that bit in the middle... And then you push those two sides together, resealing the cake. It's brilliant. Then on day two, you do the same thing, but you go across the other way. So you eat this bit, and then you push those four bits together, resealing the cake. Day three, you eat the, you eat the last few bits. So, and you, you, you stick an elastic band around them, and that sort of keeps it fresh. It's a brilliant idea. It seems perfectly sensible. You might say, well, why is that a strange notion, Dan? I can't see there's anything wrong with that. 
But then you read the detail of what he actually writes and it raises one or two questions. He says, the problem to be solved was, given a round tea cake, well, obviously he doesn't, he doesn't mean what we mean by tea cake today. That would be ludicrous. He must mean, in Victorian times, they must have just called a cake that you had with your tea a tea cake. Given a round tea cake of some five inches across. No, he does mean a tea cake. He means it. Why? Why are you doing this with a tea cake? Making it last three days. Imagine the size of the slices. Given a round tea cake of some five inches across and two persons of moderate appetite to eat it. In what way should it be cut so as to leave a minimum of exposed surface to become dry? It shouldn't. Just eat the tea cake. One tea cake between two people over three days. Imagine going round to Galton's for tea and cake. Can I have a bit of cake? There you go. There's nothing on the plate. There's a crumb. Well, at least can I have a cup of tea? I'm sorry, I'm working on a formula. It's going to be three months. <laughs> Galton died in 1911. And that's it, basically. That brings us to the end of the talk. So I hope that the next time you uh, look at a weather map or slice up a cake or have your fingerprints taken by the police or blow a dog whistle that you will think of Sir Francis Galton. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you very much. Dan Meyer there with Francis Galton. That was recorded at Wilderness Festival in 2014. It sounded like it was. Yeah. It was. It was. Oh. It was a good. We, we had uh, the auditorium had the run of the of a tent for the whole weekend. So Dan was one of 15 speakers that we had. Excellent. And, uh, yeah. Did, did you get many revelers sort of wandering in, sort of drunkenly? To you know, we didn't actually. They were the audit. Well, we were we were giving the talks in the afternoon. So oh, so true. so people were were pretty well behaved. And it's quite a, it's quite a posh festival. So that's true. So people are uh, you know their their drug of choice. <laughs> Is, is, is a, is a skinny is the lat- intellect. A, I was going to say, it's a skinny latte. Yeah. Um, I remember I emceed a cabaret at the Guardian Soulmates tent at Glastonbury, and by day four, um, it was probably the worst cabaret you've ever seen. Uh, but it didn't matter because people were just using it to sleep in the tent. It was just a casualties tent, basically. But there we are. I think after such a, a long and um, enjoyable talk, I, I feel like refreshments. I feel like it's time for a, for a biscuit, don't you, I'm, Dave? I'm ready for a biscuit. It is, yes. it is biscuit. It's always biscuit time. But what well, have you got there for us, well, uh, Mr. Matfield? Well, I've Mountfield? got the Garibaldi. Oh, I do like a Garibaldi. Oh, yes. And uniquely amongst... It's the only biscuit that comes incomplete. You have to break them off. Like, aren't there, but it's like this, it, which is satisfying. It is satisfying. It there is we satisfying. Go. I wonder if we can get that on the mic. There we go. Listen to the biscuit being turned off. Oh, that's a feeling, I'm going to snap it? mine. Oh, they've got a good they snap do, on them as well. well. Now, people complain about the Garibaldi that it's, it's, it's a dry and slightly drab biscuit but mm. i i don't i don't agree a poor man's eccles cake but i think it's i think it's terrific combined with some kind of tea or, or, or coffee um I, I did read somewhere that the the garibaldi keeps you regular <laughs> well it's you know surely it, the fig roll is is going to be uh, quids in on uh, that one. you know what I'm, i am actually You're probably I'm, confusing i am getting confused yeah. with fig roll you are fig roll definitely does uh, my friend Glenn Richardson lives almost exclusively on fig rolls, and he does suffer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, yes, why was the the Garibaldi named the Garibaldi? That's that that's one of those big. Uh, it is one of the most unusual names yeah. for a for a, for a biscuit. But isn't we it? found out why. It's it, it, it was an Italian revolutionary, um, Italian general, uh, leader of the struggle to unify Italy, and he, he made a very popular visit to South Shields in 1854 in England, and uh, made such a hit with the people. And he was he was a very a very thin man made almost entirely of raisins. So it was celebrated uh, in, in biscuit form. It's a bit like uh, if someone came out with the... Well, actually, they've just come out with the Kim Kardashian wafers, haven't they? So it's, it's they have, that sort yeah. of thing. It's um, it's in that general feel. Um, it does beg the question, why would anyone visit South Shields? 
I don't know. Why would an Italian revolutionary general go? This is the this is the place. I, I must I, go to South South Chile. Probably Jews. same as Hitler. You probably had relatives there. I mean, that's what you do, isn't it? You go to these places because you have relatives. When, when did Hitler visit Liverpool? Did he? Yeah. Did he visit Liverpool? Who did? Yeah. When in 1954? <laughs> where, where was? I don't know. 20s. Oh, really? Mm. Ah, that's like um, Lenin visited. Um, um, it was a, a market garden town. Um, in the in the thirties, M- Milton Keynes. Milton Keynes. No, it wasn't Milton Keynes, but it was somewhere like that. <laughs> in the thirties, famous visit by Lenin. And so, what's very curious about Liverpool? I know we're, we're going off on a tangent here, which is unlike us. No, it is. But uh, you know, there is a statue of Carl Jung in the centre of Liverpool. But right. Carl Jung never went to Liverpool. He had a dream about Liverpool. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Oh, this ties in nicely with our it, next podcast. It does. I don't think we should go any further. We should leave that. We'll leave that hanging. Yes. That there is a statue of Carl Jung in the centre of Liverpool, yeah. which can connects with our next speaker, Daisy Campbell, wow. and the story that she has to tell. We've got a cliffhanger, Dave. We've accidentally stumbled across a cliff, and we're going to hang over it. It wasn't planned, was it? It wasn't planned. Marvellous. Well, we should leave it there, really, shouldn't we? Well, you've been listening to the Auditorium Podcast with myself, Dr Bramwell, and my esteemed colleague, Mr Mountfield. And if you've got any questions or um, niggles, Don't bother. I'd like to send us some money... <laughs> Then yeah. you can write, as always, to uh, Mr. Mountfield, Dr. Brownwell, Auditorium Podcast, England. And uh, don't forget to uh, include a stamped address envelope if you'd like to, us to send some of our pubic <laughs> 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 okay, I won't be sending pubic hair. If you get pubic hair, it will be Dave's, all right? So uh, there we go. I'm keeping mine. <laughs> <laughs> Should we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's good. That's good. Uh, I'll leave it there. <laughs> the Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mayling. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com, where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about at one of our venues around the UK, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes.